hardline constitutionalist would say, this is all illegal, this should never be allowed to happen. Um, those arguments work in um, an academic setting, debating clubs, but not in the real world. In the real practical world, to say it's all illegal, well, yeah, great, where does that get you? You know, in, in reality, what you have to do is say, how do we solve this difficulty? And that's by repeal of accession treaties. Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to this week in review with Nigel Farage. Nigel, in the past we've talked about the idea that institutions and investors are buying bonds despite these absurdly low returns, especially adjusted for inflation. And we've also talked about the idea that I suppose central banks could try and pin interest rates very low in order to spur on the economy. Today, I want to tackle sort of the third side of that debate, which is whether central banks could lose control of the bond market, whether the price of bonds could plunge, which pushes up interest rates, even though central banks are trying to keep a lid on things. Do you think that could possibly happen in the UK? Well, it's the old story, isn't it? Is the market bigger than government action? Is the market bigger than central bank action? Um, Mrs. Thatcher once famously said, you can't buck the market. And within a couple of years, we'd crashed out of the exchange rate mechanism, despite using every tool available to government. Interest rates that day went to 15%. Um, vast amounts of reserves were used to try and defend the pound. And yet the market took, uh, I think, a very objective decision that we couldn't stay where we were. And I think the parallel from that, that that, that might strike a chord in people's minds. So yes, I think it is possible. Whether it's probable, I'm not sure. But is it possible? Yes. And there does come a moment, doesn't there? I mean, I've got the feeling, Nick, after the last few years, that central banks feel impregnable. They feel whatever they do will work, that they are totally in control, and they do have more power in some ways you know, independent political power, actually, that they've ever had before. But, uh, you know, nemesis always follows hubris. So I don't think it's impossible. Whether it's probable, we'll have to see. There are signs that the bond markets are cracking in Australia and Canada in particular. So in the case of Australia, because I'm more familiar with it, we had the Reserve Bank of Australia, the central bank, promise to keep the two-year bond yield, and I think it was 0.1%. And all of a sudden, the two-year bond spiked uh, the yield spike, the price fell, and this triggered a bit of a panic uh, right across the Australian bond market about whether or not interest rates would be raised long before the RBA had promised to keep them pegged down. I think it's 2024. So it, it seems that it, in at least Canada and Australia, we are seeing signs of, of trouble. And I wonder whether America and the UK could be next. If central bankers do start to lose control, or at least there's some concern, what do you think will happen next? Well, I think actually this is more likely to happen in Europe, to be honest with you. If there is going to be a real disconnect between what central banks are doing and what the real world's doing, um, you know, we can be as critical as we like on these podcasts about the Fed and about the Bank of England, and often we are. Uh, but I think it's the ECB that may face more difficulties on this because they're kind of they're in control, but they're not really lender of the last resort. It's it's a very odd setup, the ECB you know, in relation to, you know, a Eurozone of hundreds of millions of people. So if there was going to be a real problem, a real disconnect, I suspect that's where we'd look. That's also where the governments are so indebted that they rely on central banks to finance themselves. So if central banks fail to, then, uh, well, there could be some fireworks. 
Let's quickly talk about the issue of Poland, which is making some uh, a little bit of fireworks in and of itself. These are legal fireworks, not so much political in my view. I don't know if you agree with that, actually. No, because one overlaps with the other. I mean, don't forget, you know, it's only 30 years ago, 32 years ago, that these people were living under communism, living under direct rule from Moscow, the Brezhnev doctrine of limited sovereignty. You know, they allowed Poland to do a few things to themselves, but basically Moscow made the big decisions. So, you know, it, it isn't just old people that remember those bad days. It's, it, it's middle-aged people and upwards remember growing up and living under that system. And what is now happening legally with Brussels, where they continually uh, criticise Poland, and now they're fining Poland a million euros a day, it may appear to us to be somewhat obscure and legalistic and about the appointment of judges, but actually it goes right into the whole question of politics. You know, Poland, Poland was delighted to join NATO. Who can blame them? I mean, who can blame them after what they've lived through and been through? And the EU was almost thrown in as a bit of a job lot, you know? Uh, and there were always some reservations in Poland, even for Lech Walesa you know, who I met a few years ago, and people like that. There were always some reservations about what the true intentions of Brussels uh, were going to be. Uh, so no, I think legalistic stories get to the heart of sovereignty. Rather like, what's the row in Northern Ireland now over? It's over the ECJ above all. It's over who the, it's, it's over who the final arbiter is. So no, I think this is very real. I mean, I, look, I don't see poll exit happening next Thursday, but do I think that the Central European countries, for which I'm talking about Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic and Slovakia, do I think they're on a head-on collision course, culturally, uh, legally, and ultimately politically with the Brussels elites? Yes, I do. And I can't see anything that improves that situation. The particular legal issue that I really want to dig into with you, because you'll understand this better than I do, is the idea that the EU itself is on shaky ground when it comes to its legal backing. And what I mean by that is that who has the superiority or the primacy yeah, of yeah. law inside the EU? Is it yeah. the EU treaties or is it the national constitutions? And that's what the legal ruling in Poland yeah, is about. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, look, uh, you know, I've been through years and years of these debates and these arguments. Um, I mean, our position was very simple. European law was superior to British law because an act of parliament, the 1972 European Communities Act, had effectively lent that authority, lent that authority. And anyone that signs the accession treaty is lending that authority, surrendering that authority, choose whatever term you like. Now, Poland's highest court has ruled that no, no, Polish law is superior. Well, under the Polish constitution, Polish law was superior until they signed the treaty of accession. And until they repeal the Treaty of Accession, as we've done, European law has to be supreme. The odd thing about it is the German Constitutional Court in Karlsruhe said something quite similar, but no one bothered because that was Germany. But all the while, that accession treaty is in law in your country. You know, your own Supreme Court can be overruled. And it's just as simple as that. And yeah, that's the latest spark for this row. But why would you want 30 years on from communism to give away the ability to govern your own country. And, 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 and I, I, that debate, that argument will go on for years, but ultimately 
There's no way that Poland's going to stay part of this. No way. I'm going to try and disagree with you here because in my mind, if the ascension agreement or law or treaty, which assigns power to, to the EU, if that is unconstitutional, then it's it's not law. And, well, and the powers yeah, have been well, reclaimed in that legal ruling. Well, here's the, I mean, look, this gets very technical, right? The argument is that an elected parliament is the representative of the people and therefore has the authority on behalf of the people to, but, but look, a hardline constitutionalist would say, this is all illegal, this should never be allowed to happen. Um, those arguments work in um, an academic setting, debating clubs, but not in the real world. In the real practical world, to say it's all illegal, well, yeah, great, where does that get you? You know, in, in reality, what you have to do is say, how do we solve this difficulty? And that's by repeal of accession treaties. The part of it that interests me is that if the political will to dissolve the EU were there, the legalities uh, would not be an obstacle. And I think people need to be aware of that. Yeah, you know something, uh, all the time we hear, every week we hear um, a concept quoted called international law, right? There is no such thing as international law. Political will overrides everything, ultimately. I just wish the Constitution did in the case of the EU. But uh, Nigel, thanks for joining me. And everyone, thanks for joining us at home as well.